0: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a live interview I did with Sonia Schmidt, on the history of the Soviet nuclear industry. It's the first in Pitt Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies fall speaker series, Nuclear Fallout, Science and Society in Eurasia. The Chernobyl disaster has been variously described to human error, reactor design flaws, and industry mismanagement. But what was the Soviet industry before Chernobyl? My guest, Sonia Schmidt, discusses how Soviet experts established nuclear power as a driving force of social, not just technical, progress, the industry's dual origins in weapons and electrification programs, and the emergence of nuclear power experts as a professional community. Sonja Schmidt is an associate professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech, specializing in social studies of technology, science and technology policy... Sociocultural Studies of Risk, Energy Policy, and Nuclear Nonproliferation. She's the author of Producing Power The Pre Chernobyl History of the Soviet Nuclear Industry, published by MIT Press. Here's Sonia Schmidt.
1: I want to live. I
0: So just to start, um, your book, Producing Power, the Pre-Chernobyl History of the Soviet Nuclear Industry, examines this development, this history of Soviet nuclear power. Um, What got you interested in this topic?
1: Chernobyl. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was a teenager when Chernobyl occurred, and I still remember the debates over whether to leave our windows open, what to do with the lettuce in our garden, uh, and things like that. Um, and that really never um, let go of me. And when I, when I studied Russian, I always had that my father's an engineer. And so I always wanted to kind of combine those two things, my, my affinity for, for Russia or Russian language and my interest in nuclear things. And when I discovered the field of science and technology studies, Um, which you know can do that I was thrilled and I found a supportive environment where I could actually go and do that ironically um, on the kind of the other side of my home country Austria in the United States where I received funding to go to Russia and investigate this history by digging through archival documents and talking to veterans of the Soviet nuclear industry
0: So but it's interesting because most people then would work specifically on Chernobyl, which, of course, you address, but you're dealing with the prehistory of Chernobyl. What drew you to that direction?
1: So, again, starting from Western interpretations of the disaster that were very quick to um, blame the disaster on either a faulty reactor design or flaws in the reactor design, um, or on um, poorly trained um, reactor operators, or more generally, you know, on a corrupt backwards system. Uh, I wanted to understand how a nation that for a long time was, you know, um, if not ahead of the United States, so you know, racing with the United States in terms of um, scientific and technological progress. How on earth they would decide to build reactors that, if it was a flawed design, all over their country, including near beloved cities such as St. Petersburg, um, and and also, you know, I, I just didn't buy the argument that those people were worse trained than people in other countries. Um, after all, I watched The Simpsons growing up, <laughs> um, and and then the the system argument is you know uh, obviously a, a, a an old stereotype uh, that that you know prevails sometimes in the west that everything everything over there is kind of backwards and and um not as diligent as uh, wherever the other part of the world may be so I, I wanted to challenge the, or I wanted to understand, you know, why uh, the Soviet uh, Soviet scientists and planners decided to build these particular reactors, um, run them not just at Chernobyl but at other uh, sites in the in the Soviet, former Soviet Union as well, um, and also who was responsible for uh, setting up this industry for choosing um, designs for training people, and so on. And it was imperative for me to, to go back in history to do that, because Chernobyl is oftentimes explained as, you know this, this is the second-by-second second account how the accident occurred. But in order to understand the accident, I argue, uh, you have to have this long historical perspective that helps you understand how it came to be that the operators in the room at that point in time made the decisions they made, how the the um, the, um, the so-called experiment, the test that they were conducting, was set up and approved. Um, and you know how how this reactor design fit into this whole uh, larger story of the nuclear industry.
0: Now let, let's start at the, how this this nuclear industry developed because one of the surprising, well, at least surprising for me, because I know very little about this. But one of the things you note is that s- nuclear scientists in in the Soviet Union had to convince Soviet officials to of the benefits of nuclear power i mean they had the military application and development of the atom bomb but in terms of its peaceful or civilian application they they really had to kind of convince the benefits of this so what issues did did scientists face and how did they overcome them in convincing soviet officials to build nuclear power plants
1: well again it's not just the soviets that had to convince uh, their planners uh, that uh Civilian nuclear power was a viable, um, economically viable option. Um, sim, you know, you can you can find a similar story in the United States where uh, the government uh, significantly um, assisted the industry uh, to get the, the the ball rolling, so to speak. Um, but it was actually before the Soviets detonated their first um, nuclear weapon that the. Leading scientist uh, in the in the program at the time Igor Kurchatov uh, decided to explore possibilities of using uh, nuclear fission for uh, so-called peaceful purposes, um, and the 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 idea was that this enormous power that is that is released when um, atoms fission could be used in a uh, in a power plant and ultimately produce heat and electricity and benefit humankind and so forth and so on. And that eventually, over the years, this, this peaceful atom rhetoric became a, a very powerful uh, narrative within Soviet propaganda vis-a-vis the arms race with the United States, which was portrayed as something you know we have to do because we can't leave the nuclear weapons monopoly to the United States. But look, we are doing this kind of as a redemption uh, effort. We're building a, a peaceful industry that will benefit people. Um, but it wasn't easy because the Soviet Union is an incredibly re- or was an incredibly resource rich country. They had oil, they had gas, they had coal they had massive uh, hydropower plants at the time already so the immediate need for for nuclear energy wasn't that obvious especially since there was no um, at the time kurchatov initiated this there was no proof a that it was you know that it would technically work and b that it would be economically viable so that's why they had quite a hard time convincing planners to allocate um, uh, funds to this experimental program um, that remained experimental for a significantly longer time than in other parts of the world, um, and that went through uh, fits and starts in its in its uh, realization, but that was essentially a, a combination of a, a kind of a narrative uh, creation of you know the peaceful atom will will drive progress and modernization. But at the same time, the hard legwork of getting those funds allocated and written into the plans. So that's what I'm also trying to to kind of supplement the the, the existing literature on the you know the grand narratives of, of peaceful nuclear energy, with this with this boring uh, administrative history of. You know, but yeah, that's beautiful. But we still need the money to actually build those plants, to actually get the resources to where they're needed, and and actually demonstrate that nuclear power is actually feasible.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I found interesting. Is that on the one hand, they the the arguments are placed within this narrative of you know, Soviet science is the achievement of the communist system. It's placed within the context of, although even going back to Lenin's electrification campaigns in the early 1920s. But on the other hand, too, you have this demand that we don't usually associate so much in our popular conception of the Soviet Union is that, well, this has to be worth the investment. We actually have to get something out of this to make it worth it. And I found that, that contrast of its not profitability, but its efficiency and feasibility in terms of its economic costs, quite an interesting one. Did they did they achieve that? Was it was it worth it? Did they achieve that uh, nuclear power to benefit Soviet energy production?
1: Well, you know, as as uh, Russian historians will probably tell you that there are not really reliable numbers from those years, but um, they nuclear power plants definitely replaced um, in some cases, replaced; in other places, in in other instances, um, prevented uh, polluting fossil fuel fuel plants to come online. So that's that's one way in which they, uh, you know, made a possibly beneficial impact. The other um, advantage that um, that uh, scientists and engineers discussed with planners, with the economic planners, was that. Um, while there was a uh, an abundance of coal and oil and gas those resources were usually located in in siberia and in the far east and not so much in the european part of the soviet union where the demand for electricity was the highest and nuclear power plants could be sited, clo- you know in, in reasonable distance to uh, um, um centers of, of, uh, to urban population centers where they could provide this electricity demand um, fairly easily.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, nuclear power, as it developed, it has its military side and it has a civilian side. Um, and, and it's actually quite interesting. When I was looking for images for the flyer for this event, all of the images deal with the the, the atom. It's always the peaceful atom. <laughs> the, any kind of nuclear weapons is put on the United States for its propaganda. So I found that quite interesting. But in reality, it existed both in military and civilian applications. So how did they they uh, distribute the responsibilities? Who was responsible for what in in this system?
1: If I may, I'd like to back up a yeah, little sure. bit because <clears throat> when I when I first started, you know, looking into this story, I thought that I would find a clear group that, would, that was promoting the RBMK reactor, the Chernobyl-type reactor, and another group that had promoted the, the other type, the other major uh, type, the pressurized water reactor, the VVER. What I found instead was a very complicated network of institutions that promoted multiple uh, designs and that also, at least in part, were in charge of the scientific um, um, backbone of the of the nuclear weapons program, so it was the same institutes that were originally set up to develop nuclear weapons that eventually also came up with designs for uh, for power reactors, and that is because the uh, the, the development of nuclear weapons required uh, reactors that produced plutonium um, and also facilities that enriched uranium. But in, you know, the, so the the military was already running. Uh, uh, nuclear reactors that were optimized to produce weapons grade plutonium. Those reactors were sited in Siberia, so there was no, you know, consideration for electricity production or um, um, delivering that to urban centers.
0: Is that is that a particular Soviet situation, or is that similar in other places? The development of nuclear weapons and power.
1: If you if you need if you want to develop nuclear weapons, you need plutonium typically, yeah. and and so that's um, that is that is comparable to the United States and other and other nations with nuclear weapons. Yes. Um, but the idea was then to convert some of those um, plutonium producing military reactors to reactors that could at least as a byproduct provide heat and electricity to adjacent communities and eventually to convert them to reactors that optimized Uh, electricity generation and that's also again uh, um, you know a common story throughout the world that the the military um, needs kind of came first and then came the the you know let's let's apply this to the civilian side as well Um, but the um, um, one of my interviewees put it this way the the civilian nuclear reactors were kind of the, as he put it, the bastards of the bomb. They were the uh, illegitimate children of the of the nuclear weapons program, uh, in the sense that the organization that emerged as administering and managing everything nuclear in the former Soviet Union, the Ministry of Medium Machine Building or um, was actually in charge of everything nuclear, starting with uh, enriching uh, uranium, to building reactors, to um, uh, you know providing the fuel, to uh, extracting the plutonium for for weapons, to uh, reprocessing spent fuel, and also eventually to uh, developing civilian uh, nuclear reactors. But what I found was that, uh, uh, and you already mentioned that the um, the other tradition that nuclear power plants uh, kind of came out of was this uh, countrywide electrification uh, plan that Lenin had originated, and that was one of the discourses that the the nuclear advocates could plug into, you know, their their attempts to promote nuclear power because they said this is a continuation of a of a long-standing program. Uh, the electrification of the entire country in the service of communism and progress. Um, And in charge of all power plants, conventional power plants, hydro, uh, uh, fossil fuel plants, uh, what have you, and the entire transmission grid in the former Soviet Union was another powerful ministry, the Ministry of Energy and Electrification, MinEnergo. And nuclear power plants, civilian nuclear power plants emerged at this kind of weird boundary area between those two ministries that the one being in charge of all power plants and the other one being in charge of everything nuclear. So that's where the friction really happened. Who is responsible for what? And um, one of the critical events that, uh, that occurred in this history was uh, relatively late in 1966, when Mash, the, the nuclear ministry decided to transfer most of the uh, nuclear power plants that operated at the time and were under construction at the time to MinEnergo and all the subsequent, you know, the planned and, and subsequently uh, constructed nuclear power plants. There were a few exceptions, mostly prototypes uh, that, that, Min, uh, that Min Sred Marsh kept under its uh, control. Um, but the, op- the construction and operation of nuclear power plants was transferred to MinEnergo, and that was a very um, significant um, you know point in time that was after chernobyl sometimes invoked as well we should have known better we transferred these uh, delicate you know facilities to a ministry that didn't know what they were doing etc cetera, et cetera. in fact at the time this transfer happened there were only two reactors in operation one at bielorusk and one in in uh, novovoronish and everything else was still under construction. So you could say, well, you know, at the time there was still there was still the opportunity to train people, to transfer expertise, to make sure that that relevant knowledge gets to where it needs to be to build these plants safely and operate them safely.
0: Let's talk about the people who worked in the various levels of this nuclear industry, because not only are you having to build and run these uh, these plants, you have to have people to do those buildings, that construction, the science, and also the everyday manning of these, these power plants. And you, you said at the beginning that one of the, the ideas of why Chernobyl occurred is because of a, you know, a poor training of, of various- That was the charge. Yeah, that was the charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, You're not saying that, but that's the charge. <laughs> yes, thanks. <laughs> um, so talk about the people in, who worked in the nuclear industry. What types of people were they, they how were they trained, and, and what were their working conditions like?
1: So again, this was an emerging discipline. There was no such thing as, you know, a, a regular program in nuclear engineering that you just sign up for and, and you know, and then you go ahead and, and, and study that at a, at a major university. At the time, those programs were just being created, and due to their uh, proximity to the weapons program, um, a lot of times they were handled in, in ways that were different from other university programs. So, for example. Um, one a person I, I talked to who is a, 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 a nuclear physicist who, as far as I know, still works at Obninsk, the first uh, nuclear power plant near Moscow, a tiny little one, um, and has become a, a, an expert on breeder reactors, he told me that the notes that he took during lectures had to be handed over to the teacher after class and they were locked up until the next lecture. So that's that's how it was handled. Um, that's how the, you know they, they, they tried to control sensitive information. Um, and the first uh, kind of um, generation of uh, workers in the nuclear industry were oftentimes trained in more traditional engineering programs, civil engineering, mechanical engineering, you name it, um, who were who were hired, to work on this, you know, new uh, facility, while they were trying to set up nuclear engineering programs all over the country, and there were um, there were certain individuals who, um, you know, excelled at at doing that, at writing textbooks, at you know, making that making that a mass discipline. But again, it took at least a decade, if not more, to to get this program underway. And with this professionalization that I also describe in the book, um, came. Uh, a, a certain um, uh, narrowing of you know of your training. The the experts I talked to who who were one of you know the first graduates of these programs when they came to a nuclear power plant, their first assignment they would start with the maintenance crew and they would start you know fixing things and learning basically where the nuts and bolts were in the the plant and gradually work their way up in the hierarchy but it wasn't until months if not years into their assignment that they would finally you know get to sit in the control room and actually actually operate any control rods or you know and and they would they would shadow a more senior worker for a long time before the, it was almost like an apprenticeship yeah. after a formal study. Once the programs were more formalized, that process was cut because they they needed so many people and they needed them fast, um, so that you know very very young people uh, came to operate reactors very quickly because at the same time um, reactors were churned out you know fairly quickly and that is due to. Um, the the longtime minister of the uh, Ministry of Energy and Electrification, <clears throat> Piotr Neporozny. Um, it, it just so happened that both ministries, Minenergo and sredmash had ministers for 30 years or thereabouts uh, leading up to Chernobyl. So, so they were really, you know, kind of small empires that were led by these, by these individuals, by these powerful individuals. Um, and I mentioned before this transfer from Saritmash to Minanirgo of the power plants, which is also interesting from the standpoint of, well, if you're producing weapons, you're not really interested in running power plants that produce electricity, basal electricity, constantly, day after day, after week, after month, and so on. It's it's a boring business if you're used to, you know, producing nuclear warheads that you then get to blow up. Um, so uh, in, in the energy ministry, by contrast, they were interested in quickly uh, building more plants. And so um, actually, in the Komsomol archive, I came across um, a suggestion by Neporozhny, who uh, suggested a, um, he called it so it was basically the idea that you start in one place to build one reactor, and then once you have reached a certain milestone, you move the team to the next plant to fulfill the same stage in the project while the next team starts working on the first site. And so you, you can actually uh, simultaneously and in parallel construct multiple units and on one site and eventually multiple sites uh, in a very quick succession. That took him a while to convince you know the the planning uh, committee uh, to to allocate funds for that and to you know train up the people that he needed for that but eventually in the 1970s that's pretty much what you what you see I mean the the uh, the time from start of construction to uh, completion and going critical of these of these Soviet power plants in the 1970s is astonishingly short I can't tell you <laughs> um, you stumped me, but it's it's no. I, w- I would say um, anywhere between five and ten years which is which is minuscule compared to what we are spending on now. Mm.
0: Uh, so one of the things you emphasize in the book, you spent a long time discussing, and you mentioned it already, is the, the role of the design, right? Because this is another charge of Chernobyl as well. It happened because of certain design decisions that they made. So why is the design so important? And, and how? why did they decide on certain types of plants versus others? And why is that significant for, for those of us who have no clue about this?
1: Yeah, so what I found was that... Um, you know the 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 charge that the Chernobyl reactor design was kind of um, outlandish, old-fashioned, flawed, et cetera, um, bugged me because a you know the United States also had a reactor of that design. It was never commercialized, however, um, and there, there were I mean it, it's a it's a direct derivative of a um, originally plutonium-producing and then dual-use uh, reactor design. Um, that was, however, adopted later and after they already made the decision to adopt the pressurized water reactor, which at the time was the preferred design worldwide. And the Soviets at the time were very involved in international discussions about nuclear energy. So in 1955 um, and 58 and I believe 61 and 64, uh, these uh, conferences on the peaceful uses of atomic energy, as they were called, happened in Geneva and that's where uh, scientists from across the world shared their knowledge on uh, nuclear energy, nuclear energy developments, different reactor designs. And it became very clear very quickly that the pressurized water desi- water reactor design was the f- the preferred design, um, um, you know, worldwide. And so the Soviets, even though their VVER design differed in significant ways from the um, the Western uh, pressurized water reactor designs. Um, Essentially, it used the same ingredients, if you will, um, to to produce uh, electricity in this this particular reactor. Um, The problem was in the Soviet Union that nuclear energy had been written into the plans and had been written into the plans in a very ambitious, optimistic way. In other words, if they want, if the nuclear industry didn't want to risk being cut back yet again, um, they needed to stick to that plan and to, and to that growth. And they realized that they couldn't fulfill those plans relying on just that one line of, of reactor designs. There was a bottleneck uh, with uh, the, the reactor vessel, the, you know the critical part of this, of this reactor. That only one factory in the Soviet Union could produce at the time. So it was a very um, labor intensive, uh, difficult task to manufacture these, these reactor vessels, and they just couldn't produce enough quickly enough. Um, and that's when the discussion uh, came around you know, so what do we do? Is there another design that we could add? And at that time, the uh, um, one of the uh, design institutes that had been involved in um, the weapons program uh, you know on a, on a massive scale, um, Nikolai Niki uh, Nikiet, um, proposed a version of the RBMK that went through many iterations. It was reviewed. It was, you know, uh, um, peer-reviewed and it was, you know, uh, changed. But eventually it was adopted in part because, uh, the reactors that at the time were being built, the VVERs, the pressurized water reactors, they were starting to, you know, with small uh, uh, power. So they started with 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt. They scaled it up to 360-ish megawatts, then 440. So it was a slow process where they gradually increased the power of these pressurized water reactors. And they had a proposal that came in and said, we can build you a reactor, 1,000 megawatt, Giant that you know that doesn't need complicated factory uh, uh, manufacturing. We don't have that bottleneck. We don't have to worry about that. We can assemble it more or less on site. We have operating experience with it because we have these military um, crocodiles in Siberia that you know we have we have lots of operating uh, experience with that we can quickly convert. And of course that wasn't true, but that was the argument. And uh, so it's economical, it's feasible, it's, you know, technically proven, and they had a trump card up their sleeve, if we ever need more plutonium for our weapons program, we can modify the cycle on this this new reactor and produce it without even stopping operations because it has an online fueling system. Mm.
0: So there's a Cold War dimension to this as well. Absolutely,
1: yes. And that was... You know it, the combination of all those factors it can it can help us keep to the to the goals and to the growth plan, and it can, you know it has this national security implication in the background as a backup. Um, plus uh, the RBMK consists of you know not one pressure vessel but a, a large um, um, space of individual uh, channels. It's also referred to sometimes as channel type reactor. And one of the arguments I found, and I found particularly interesting, is that it was considered a modular design where if you have an accident, only one of those modules, maybe two or three, but never the whole 211 or however, however many were in there, will melt down. So you can actually, if you have an accident, you can localize it. You can you, can, you know, bound it, even within the reactor. So there were a lot of arguments in favor for that RBMK. And it got the go-ahead, and it was built um, near Leningrad at the time uh, in Sosnovy the first one.
0: Let's talk about Chernobyl because all of this is leading up to that crucial, <laughs> that crucial moment uh, that has since defined, you know, our understanding how we imagine Soviet nuclear power. So, what happened with Chernobyl? Why was there an accident there?
1: So, I mean the. the you know the the I don't want to produce yet another version of I will tell you the ultimate reason why Chernobyl happened. Uh, there's too many versions of that out there already. And I'm uh, w- what I was interested in um, documenting and and teasing out was the different versions of why the explosion happened and what was at stake with these versions. And so. I mean the, the two dominant versions and they, they're they're embodied in you know the, the historical events and, and most recently picked up by this Chernobyl miniseries, um, is that the operators made mistakes. They messed up. Um, they didn't follow protocols, they stopped safety systems, and they, you know, um, they got the re- and, and you see that even even in the movie, you know, they turned it off when everything went haywire in the in the control room that is that and, and that version of the story has been presented to um, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency in um, in August of 1986 which mind you was still in the midst of you know the the Soviets trying to address and and contain that accident. Um, but this operator error version was the, the version that dominated the early mm-hmm. discussion, and
0: it was also the basis for the trial that they had of the, exactly. of the people of the workers responsible.
1: Yes, so um, the, the trial that you mentioned took place a year about a year after uh, Chernobyl in, in the summer of 1987 in the town of Chernobyl, and ended with uh, the indictment of the plant director, the uh, deputy technical director and um, um, one other person that I'm blanking on right now. And then, and then they had three um, rank and file engineers that also received um, lengthy um, labor camp sentences. And that was really to seal the, the operator error uh, version. But at the time, there was already another version. Let me back up. Um, th- what was at stake with this operator error version was that the reactor was fine. The people messed up. And uh, Alexandrov, who was at the time the president of the Soviet Academy of Sciences and the director of the Kurchatov Institute, which was basically the scientific director of all these um, uh, reactor designs, um, he used, a, and others, uh, I don't know who, who was first, but he used an analogy with a car accident. He said, if, if, a, if a driver hits a car, you don't blame the car, you blame the driver. Did I say, if a a driver hits a tree, Mm -hmm. sorry. If a driver hits hits a a tree tree with a car, then um, uh, you don't blame the driver, you blame the, uh, you don't blame the the car, you blame the driver. But there was another version that was kind of um, uh, boiling and eventually reached the surface. That was the version that, no, wait a second, there were issues with this design. And there were known issues with this design. They were just not known to the operators. And uh, by operators, I mean, not just the people directly in the control room, but also the, um, the ministry in charge of many of these plants, Min and um, And so they also, they, they used the same analogy. And they said, well, if a driver hits a tree and it turns out that the brake in his car is not actually the brake, but the accelerator, then that's clearly a design flaw, and he didn't know, or she didn't know about, you know, that that problem. Um, and so that version gained traction uh, in the in subsequent years, and resulted in um, a famous report um, that, that's often referred to as the Steinberg report, um, that was um, that that basically collected uh, evidence to show that this particular reactor design had some known challenges at specific constellations in its uh, you know h- h- how high the power was that it was running at uh, what um, what the pro- the progress what the process was in terms of shutting it down and then raising power again which which did happen uh, leading up to that explosion they actually were scheduled to to run that test um, a lot earlier and then got a call from the Kiev dispatcher basically saying we still need the power for another 24 hours delay that that test and that's when they when they tried to raise the power again they, they were already too far advanced I don't know if you want me to go into technical details here but essentially the the idea was that um, the the RBMK gets unstable at low power levels and um, there were precedents so there were other instances where a similar effect, albeit much smaller, had been observed, most prominently in 1975 at the Leningrad uh, nuclear power plant. They observed a similar effect when they dropped the control rods into the core to turn it off. um, And they observed an initial rise in reactivity instead of an immediate shutdown. That accident was covered up even within the Soviet nuclear industry and never reached other RBMK operators.
0: This is the thing about the Chernobyl. You know, it it it's interesting. This past summer, we've had a return of Chernobyl in kind of public memory. A lot of it thanks to this HBO series that was wildly popular and acclaimed. But also, there's been a publication of new books about Chernobyl. I think there are at least three have come out in the last year or so. Um, perhaps, probably more. Um, and, and looking at the accident, and a lot of them are trying to explain, you know, why. And 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 in our um, Kind of understanding of it, at least a popular understanding. It Chernobyl is a, it symbolizes a, a general indictment of the Soviet system itself, right? In in many respects, uh, it the fact that this accident happened is well. This is because the Soviet system itself is degenerated and inefficient and has all of these problems. Um, what do you what do you think about how Chernobyl is remembered today and discussed today uh, in relationship to You know, your understanding of the accident, your understanding of the nuclear industry within the Soviet context.
1: I mean, I don't I don't think I can speak to how Chernobyl is remembered in general, but um, but I think one of the dangers of remembering Chernobyl is is um, and I believe this was at least attributed to Mikhail Gorbachev, who said that um, Chernobyl basically was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. I don't share that assessment. Um, what I've what I've shown in you know other publications is that Chernobyl was actually, I mean, it, it happened you know just a few years before the Soviet Union collapsed, but that was not you know nobody could foresee that. Um, it was actually very successfully integrated into a discourse of overcoming crisis and coming out stronger at the end, mm-hmm. uh, of normalizing this this accident in a very interesting way. Um, it did not uh, trigger within the Soviet Union, a, a, you know, a, a shift in a, a complete shift in attitude toward nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Um, even to this day, you know, you got you got. Uh, um, I mean, you, you now have you know differing voices, but you you have a, a large popular support for uh, nuclear power in in large parts of the former Soviet Union and the former Soviet Empire in general. Um, was it inevitable? i I would say no, absolutely not. it was it was an accident. Um, it's you know and but but at the time, it was the Cold War, it was a design that wasn't operated anywhere else. So it could be, from a Western perspective, it could be dismissed easily as, well, of course they blew that up, right? I mean, it couldn't have been otherwise. The Soviet Union could not produce anything but Chernobyl. And I, I totally disagree. I think Fukushima, to some extent, has proven that you know a, a severe accident can happen in a highly industrialized very disciplined uh, technically very competent nation just as well Mm -hmm. it's just a an unfortunate constellation of events and actions and decisions that that led to this accident Um, maybe just one one detail um about the the you know what what actually triggered the accident because um again the (laughs) the series portrays the operators pushing that emergency shutdown button as you know a reaction to something going horribly wrong what actually was the case with this emergency sh- so-called emergency shutdown button was that it was the only way in the RBMK to automatically lower all control rods at the same time automatically without manual, um, you know, manual, manually controlling their descent. So it was a standard procedure. And actually, the last of the Chernobyl reactors that was shut down in 2000, that is on tape, when they turned it off, they turned that same button, mm-hmm. because that was the way to release all the control rods into the core at the same time automatically. So that was the standard procedure of shutting it down. Unfortunately, at, you know, in, in 1986, That caused the explosion because too many of the control rods had been pulled out too far in an effort to raise power. And the tips of the control rods um, that had been modified to increase the reactor's economic efficiency, uh, when they were lowered into the reactor all at once, introduced an additional, additional reactivity to the core, which ultimately led to its explosion.
0: In the United States, we had the Three Mile Island disaster. Uh, how do you place that next to Chernobyl and how it's understood and the responses to it and, and what it means for you know each society?
1: So Three Mile Island um, was officially dismissed by Soviet leaders as something that could only happen in the capitalist West, never in the Soviet Union. Um, And you get the mirror interpretation after Chernobyl. This is something that could only happen in the Soviet Union, never in the West. Um, But again, in the the actual historical records, in the archival records, I was able to see changes that were implemented as a direct response to Three Mile Island. Those were um, personnel changes, such as you know, there's, there's got to be a full staff on site on weekends. And, you know, <laughs> when, we, when, we, when we assign our holiday schedule, we need to make sure that we always have, you know, a full staff on site. So there was this, this nervousness something can actually happen if we're not watching and while we're not you know paying attention that really percolated all the way down into these dry bureaucratic reports after three mile island in the in the soviet industry but again in terms of design and also in terms of consequences and scale of those of those uh, accidents they're hard to compare i mean three mile island had compared to chernobyl minimal releases Um, and you know there was a voluntary evacuation um you know it's it's just in in terms of the 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 scale of the disaster they're they're difficult to compare also the design was very different but they they both triggered uh, um, um, organizational uh, reforms so three mile island led directly to the creation of um, Inpo in the United States, the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, which is an industry um, group that um, that is um, devoted to developing best practices, exchanging experiences, making known you know mishaps and 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 challenges at other plants, getting people from one plant to work at another plant to realize you know oh. This is this is how they do it, right? Because otherwise, you never you never get out of your little silo and never never see how other people handle um, you know the actual practice of running a, a nuclear reactor. And then after Chernobyl, the, the, you know the the main um, uh, reforms that were launched in the Soviet Union were not technical. Uh, they were organizational. I mean, they, they did follow up with the technical uh, and they also followed up with, with personnel training uh, improvements. But the first reaction to uh, Chernobyl was organizational. They created this, this new ministry. Um, so they basically took all the nuclear power plants out of Minanergo. They said, you can't handle that. We need a separate ministry that, that has uh, the authority and the expertise to, to deal with these nuclear power plants. And that ministry lasted exactly three years, and then it was reintegrated into the um, what was then um, uh, Minatom, the, the Ministry for Atomic Energy, and has remained there since. So the, the the lesson learned within the Soviet Union was it's better to keep all things nuclear under one roof. Um, and it took several years for the for the technical changes and and um, and fixes. to to take place after the disaster. And then after Chernobyl, also, um, WANO was formed, which is the World Association of Nuclear Operators that was modeled specifically on INPO, which by that time had acquired quite some reputation for really improving the safety records of American uh, nuclear plants. But WANO does not have the same same mandate. It doesn't have the same power uh, as INPO does. I mean, INPO really can put all the CEOs of the nuclear utilities or the utilities that operate nuclear power plants at a, around a table and shame them for, you know, for failing certain safety standards. WANO can't do that. There are, this is this is the, the tricky part when it, once it gets international, once it gets global, you know, enter all these sovereignty issues, these concerns over, you know, um, maintaining face and so forth. So. Ew.
0: You know, the nuclear and we, we've been mostly we've been talking about the, the peaceful application of of nuclear power. But, you know, there is a very long history and legacy of nuclear test sites uh, in all of the countries that have used nuclear weapons, whether it's in Kazakhstan, whether it's in Nevada, whether it's in the South Pacific. Uh, where do we put this type of, you know, ecological damage in in the context of nuclear power in general?
1: So, two things. First of all, um, the, the argument was that nuclear power is the exact opposite to nuclear weapons, right? Nuclear weapons are bad, nuclear power is good. Nuclear weapons pollute and kill, nuclear power is clean and uh, beneficent. Um, and I, I think, you know, under normal operations, uh, that's a fair uh, point to make. When you look at pictures from Pripyat before the accident, I mean, this was paradise. This was a, a young town in the middle of nowhere with all the facilities and amenities that you could possibly dream of, especially in the Soviet Union. <laughs> but even beyond, you know, I mean, they had two swimming pools, they had roses everywhere. Uh, it was a it was a beautiful place to live, um, and. And it, you know it was well paid. Uh, they they had you know universal health care, et cetera, et cetera. So you know the the I think you, you cannot compare a, a, a nuclear power plant and its normal operation with a, a nuclear testing ground for, for uh, a testing ground for nuclear weapons. Those are just completely different um, problems. And I think it's also um, problematic to um, or. Has been has been portrayed as problematic to portray Chernobyl as a, you know, the site of a of a nuclear explosion. I mean, we could go into this, uh, but um, but the other interesting uh, aspect about this question is that after Chernobyl, uh, Ukraine, so so after you know the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine, and even before then, actually, in the Soviet Union, it started, but then it became really codified in Ukrainian, Belarusian and Russian law that there's a, a compensation for people who suffered from Chernobyl either because they lived somewhere where you know they were uh, affected by fallout or because they they worked at Chernobyl in the mitigation efforts. This Chernobyl law has been modified many many times since and one of the most interesting modifications was that the compensation that was allocated for Chernobyl uh, uh, veterans was extended to people who lived in, um, in the vicinity of these nuclear weapons testing grounds. So there is, you know, in, kind of in, in, in retrospect, there were uh, connections being made between civilians uh, affected by nuclear fallout whether it's from a, a civilian power plant accident or a nuclear weapons test.
0: What did you think of the HBO series? <laughs> and, and specifically at the end when they have the trial and the way they represented the trial and how they tried to explain why Chernobyl happened. What was your, your opinion of it? So
1: first of all, let me say I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's it's, uh, it's great. Um, it's a great you know, mini series. It's it's definitely art and and very skillful storytelling. I did have some issues with the characters they chose, um, both you know who they picked to represent kind of the, um, the, the nuclear um, industry, but also this composite character um, to me was you know problematic. But my biggest beef with the series was that they didn't talk about the construction of the sarcophagus at all. And when I listened to the to the podcasts, it became clear that they considered that boring and you know not worthy of telling a story about. And I I couldn't disagree more. I think that was a, an incredibly heroic achievement that deserves a story to be told about it. Um, the The trial was significant. I um, I in in the book I call it perhaps one of the last Soviet show trials, uh, because it was clear from the outset what was going to happen. It was it was open to a select group of foreign journalists on the first and last day. So basically, they read the indictment, and they they, uh, they read the charges, and then they read the indictment. And that's what foreigners could listen to. Everything in between was kind of, um, we know about it from people who were in the room and took notes. Um, and it was essentially a, a setup. They needed scapegoats, um, and and that was what, what happened. And I think the miniseries does a good job of uh, kind of challenging that dominant narrative of operator error Um, but predictably for an american series it i think it goes overboard a little bit in that it also kind of indicts the entire soviet system i would i would resist going that far because i think um those you know the the warning signs about the the RBMK design. Yes, they were there, and yes, there were individuals who, uh, who were trying to get that information through to Alexandrov, and yes, Alexandrov, you know, um, didn't respond in a way that you know would have been desirable. But at the same time, um, the. What I what I found in the archival documents is that there were ongoing. It was not just Volkov. It was other people and other uh, um, pockets of expertise in different uh, units. Surprisingly enough, in the party itself, there were you know specialist communities dealing with with nuclear um, nuclear power reactor issues and safety concerns that were repeatedly pushing the designers and the kurchatov institute to you know to look into that to uh, to respond to reports of uh, you know operating problems at rbmks so the, it's just it's such a complicated story that you know i mean they had to make some some tough choices i understand that but it's a it's it's one of my concerns with this uh, emphasis on storytelling, because, it, you know, you, you construct a narrative at the expense of so many other narratives. Um,
0: and, and finally, at the end of the book, I mean, you just mentioned Fukushima. And it's, it's actually quite interesting, if, now that I think about it, is that Fukushima doesn't have the same... Image that we have—it's—it like you said—it doesn't—it doesn't stand for an indictment of Japan uh, um, in the same way as Chernobyl stands for an indictment of Soviet Union. And though granted, the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed a few years later, I think adds to that. But nonetheless, what what is your how does your your history of the Soviet nuclear industry inform how you understand Fukushima uh, and and the nuclear power more generally today? What 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 kind of lessons should we walk away with?
1: Well, I think we we haven't learned anything, and we haven't. If we have learned anything, we haven't learned the same lessons, um, neither from Chernobyl nor from Fukushima. Um, but as I was winding up, you know, the, the the book, and Fukushima happened, I was I was terrified to see these images that reminded me of of Chernobyl, and and then find the exact same. Steps in the in the in the public discourse that were initially saying, well, yeah, it was a Western design, but they fiddled with it and they they changed it, and you know, it's so kind of a tainted Western design. Um, and then, of course, you know, the siting of the plant. Well, nuclear power plants in general need gigantic amounts of water, so you have to put them close to large bodies of water. There's no way around that. It has to be a river and it ha- or it has to be a lake or an ocean. Rivers tend to follow fault lines. So, so that makes them you know, susceptible to earthquakes. And oceans um, uh, make them susceptible to flooding. Um, the um, emergency diesel generators that got flooded at Fukushima were actually placed underground to protect them from earthquakes. But that gets lost in the, in the conversation. Or why would they site so many reactors together in one site? Well, that's that was the whole point of nuclear energy economies of scale you can place very powerful machines close to one another and then have one set of you know transmission lines distributing that powerful set of you know electricity from that from that plant so there were the the the, um, the questioning of the underlying decisions made in, in in Fukushima were strikingly similar to what I saw in you know in in my in my Historical analysis of Chernobyl. They also tried to blame the operators of, you know, this um, uh, Japanese cultural explanation that they didn't want to get in trouble with their superiors, or that they didn't make uh, the decisions that needed to be made because they didn't get the green light from the regulator, or the nuclear industry was too cozy with the regulator. I mean, it was just one after the other. That was exactly the same charges that were that were um, mounted after Chernobyl, and yet as I mentioned earlier, it couldn't be dismissed as easily. It wasn't as successful as after uh, Chernobyl. Um, in terms of what it means for the nuclear industry I- in general, worldwide, um, for me, this was the, the direct um, kind of motivating factor to go into this next project and look at uh, you know, uh, globalizing nuclear emergency response. Because if not Chernobyl, I mean, Fukushima convinced me that this will happen again. Maybe not soon, but it will happen again. And we better be prepared. And we better be prepared to work with other nations, because what these accidents also show is that you know nuclear fallout doesn't stop at a national boundary. So we need to develop means to collaborate across boundaries to maybe assist one another with technical expertise. Um, but that poses challenges, very significant challenges, that don't have to do with technical issues, but with issues of sovereignty, of uh, pride, of uh, identity, all those soft st- <laughs> skills that, uh, that engineers are not very good at, t- typically.
0: That was Sonia Schmidt, an associate professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech. She's the author of Producing Power, the Pre-Chernobyl History of the Soviet Nuclear Industry, published by MIT Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my High Excellencies, High Wellborns, and Noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye!